as my son gets older, I'm finding I'm resorting to various parenting phrases that I keep in my back pocket, which I'm sure many of you have heard. Things like, later, not right now, we'll see. And I imagine as his vocabulary increases and he becomes more inquisitive, I will start to resort to, because I said so. I don't know anyone who hasn't heard that. And regardless of how effective it is or not, there's a reason it gets resorted to often. It's often in the case when the parent has told the child something that might be beyond their understanding, even though it's given to them with good reason. It's not always easy to hear, though, as a child, when you don't have the parent's understanding. Today we look at a character who has little reason to do what he's told, except that God said so. And we'll be spending a few weeks in part of the book of Judges, looking at Gideon. Now, Judges is a complex and difficult book, particularly for us modern readers. And when I say, you've heard me say this before, but when I say that much of the Bible is not rated G, and it's not, Judges is rated R. Today's sermon is PG, so I know the kids are... <laughs> in service today, and so use your discretion. But there are a lot of things that happen in the book of Judges and the Bible in general that are recorded but not condoned. Now, we won't parse out all the issues, but it is helpful to recognize what the author is trying to show us as we read Judges. And that's an important question to ask wherever you are in Scripture. And a big part of why the author is writing and why the author has selected what they are writing is they're, a big part of what they're trying to show the audience is what life in Israel should not be. And so because of that, the book records a lot of terrible things and shows us that a lot of bad things can happen when people, even God's people, completely disregard God and God's commands. And the book of Judges covers a period between when Israel started to occupy the land that God promised them and the time when the monarchy was established, beginning in 1 Samuel. And so, if you take a snapshot of the timeline, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, they are freed by God, he leads them through the desert and eventually to occupy the land he had promised them. And the beginning of that is told in Joshua. And in the period of the judges, the job is unfinished. It's begun, but it's not complete. And Joshua, at the end, is sure to remind Israel that their success depends on obedience to God. And Israel's faithfulness in rejecting the gods of the surrounding people groups. And that they should be serving the Lord alone. 
And so in the book of Judges, we see a cycle of Israel's unfaithfulness in their idolatry. And that results in God giving them over to oppression by various surrounding groups. God removing his protection from them. And when that happens, they often cry out. And God responds by raising up a judge, which in this context is simply a leader. They sometimes exercise judicial function, but primarily it's a leader among the people that often operates militarily. And the judge usually frees them from their oppression. And that's followed by a period of peace. After some time, Israel forgets what happens and they resort back to idolatry again. And the cycle continues. The book ends with an interesting statement. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Four times we're told Israel had no king in the book of Judges. Twice it's written just like this. And there's some discussion as to why. But whatever the case, the statement very much conveys a sense of lawlessness in the land, particularly with regard to people's ignorance or complete disregard for God's law that is pervasive throughout the period. And so Judges is a cautionary book about what can happen when we decide what's best for us. Even so, through the raising up of judges and God's intervention, we still see the work and the grace of God very much. Like as I said, we'll be looking at Gideon. And Gideon is not perfect. None of the judges are. But he does give a glimpse of what can happen when we turn to God and when we obey God and when we do things God's way. Today, as we look at his story, we'll look at three things to keep in mind when God sends us to do something. Our passage begins as quite a few begin in Judges. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord had allowed them to be oppressed by one of their neighbors. In this case, Midian, who with the Amalekites and other people groups are taking their crops and livestock. And the cycle goes on as it has up to this point. But this time things go a little differently. So far, God has raised up a judge for them four times. But this time, in verse 8, he sends them a prophet. It says in verse 8, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. This time, God simply tells them why what is happening is happening. He doesn't tell them that he's going to do anything about it. God is gracious, but he is also holy and just. 
Israel cries out, but there's no indication that they intend to repent. In fact, as we keep reading, we see that there's still idolatry rampant in the land. If you continue reading through the chapter. As one person put it, Israel is probably crying out not so much out of a sense of genuine faith as much as perhaps desperation. Which is perhaps why they receive this answer. They are not meeting God on God's terms. But they're trying to meet him on their terms. They want to be rescued, but they want to keep living the same way that they are. And God simply tells them, you're not listening. And yet, God is doing something. God is still gracious. He is still calling Gideon. I love this encounter with Gideon because it's honest. And the first thing this encounter shows us that we need to keep in mind is God's perspective. That's a good thing to keep in mind in any season, any situation. Gideon is approached by the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, that's a label often used in the Old Testament, referring to physical, often personal manifestations of God's presence to people. God's presence is often described as personified. There's a very fancy word that theologians use for this called a theophany. It's essentially God showing up to somebody. The angel of the Lord finds Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. And if you're unfamiliar with an ancient wine press, it's a ditch. It's a small ditch. This is not where wheat was threshed. It was usually threshed out in the open, And he's doing it to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord says to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. In this scene, it almost sounds sarcastic. Spoken to a fearful and hiding farmer. Gideon protests. says, Pardon me, my Lord. But if the Lord is with us, Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's sentiment is understandable. I won't take a poll, but who hasn't felt this way at some point? Who hasn't asked, God, where are you? Who hasn't had trouble recognizing what God is doing? And yet, as understandable as it is, his assessment, in the most basic sense, is inaccurate. And if you notice, his memory is selective. There is no mention of any of God's rescues up to this point, as he had done through previous judges. There's no mention of Israel not holding up the covenant that they were commanded to uphold as a condition of God's protection. 
As Gideon speaks these words, there is an altar to an idol in his town, if not his home. Our superintendent, Danny Martinez, has said, we often want relationship without repentance. We want God to intervene, but we don't want to turn away from our sin or our idols. We want God to bring peace and heal relationships, but we don't want to forgive. And we want to be able to still gossip. We want God to provide in various ways, but we want to be able to hoard our wealth, maybe disregard the cry of the poor. We want God to prosper us personally, maybe professionally, but we don't want to work on any of our character flaws. We want revival, but we don't want to seek God in repentance. Recognizing God's perspective recognizes God in the context of relationship that requires our obedience. The next thing this encounter shows us to keep in mind is God's command. It says, verse 14, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? We don't know exactly how the Lord's presence manifested to Gideon. It seems quite personal, like he's talking to someone. But considering his words and actions later, he at the very least recognizes that these words are from God. To me, it's both encouraging and scary that the Lord tells him to go, as he says, in the strength he has. Essentially, go under the current circumstances. Guess what? God is doing something about the Midianites. He's sending Gideon, which probably isn't the answer he's looking for. God hasn't told him how it's going to happen. He hasn't even given him a sign yet. He will. But at this point, why in the world should Gideon do this? Because God said so. The Lord already answered that question when he said, Am I not sending you? The circumstances and the difficulty of the task, they don't even factor into the equation yet. The only thing that factors in at this point is the command, am I not sending you? That's the basis of God's comfort to Joshua when he tells him to be courageous and not to be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Have you ever heard the saying, if God has called you, he will equip you? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. The first time I heard it, it was in a room full of newly accepted seminary students. Who were, getting to, who were getting ready to spend more money than they ever had in their entire lives to take the hardest classes they had ever taken in their entire lives. At least that was the case for me. 
When I heard it, it was semi-comforting. And yet, it was true. They weren't quoting a verse to me, but the per- they were telling me a principle that is very present in Scripture. That's present in this passage. God speaks in a lot of different ways, and sometimes he'll open a door and lay out a path that we can see. And sometimes he'll ask us to step out in faith in spite of our fear. Just because he said, go. This church exists because God told someone to go to Northbrook. And we talked about the vision of that call in Sun- in a little bit in Sunday school earlier this year. And how much faith that actually took. And yet God was faithful and what started as a meeting in a living room and a small worship service in a school became this church on the corner of Fingston and Techni. We like to have our ducks in a row. I prefer to. And there's certainly nothing wrong with planning. As long as it doesn't become a stall tactic in the face of God's command. When you have decided that God knows best, the only thing that matters in terms of obedience is the command. The command of God. And in Gideon's case, the issue at stake is the well-being of his people. When the church neglects its command, when the church neglects What our Savior has told us to do, the world hurts. At stake is the well-being of our world. Jesus Christ and his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is the hope of the world. It is the answer to the pain of the world, and we are its agents. He's already sent us out. According to his teaching, to give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, Heal and tend to the sick. Visit the prisoner and to make disciples who will do the same. To love our Lord with our entire being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what we're called to do. And so when we do obey God's leading and God's command, there is hope for the oppressed. There is hope for those in pain. There's hope for people to encounter the love of God. The question then becomes, where are we being sent? And while the church is called to these things as a whole, globally, individually, it's going to look more unique from person to person. We need to ask, what is God highlighting to us? How does God want us to serve to contribute to the mission that he has commanded us? The final thing this encounter tells us to keep in mind is God's presence. Gideon's response is a common human response. 
Verse 15, he says, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. It's not uncommon for us to disqualify ourselves. Especially in the midst of daunting problems and say, what can I do? What difference will it make? But the one who calls us knows our flaws and our shortcomings even better than we do, and he still calls us. He says to Gideon, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. That's his answer. The language of annihilation is troubling to our modern ears, and it should be. But in the most immediate sense, the story is speaking to God's rescue from oppression. This does not sound like the work of a scared farmer. But it's the work of a scared farmer in the hands of God. God's presence is the difference. God's presence makes all the difference. God's presence has been recognized as the most fundamental promise in all of Scripture. And for very good reason. So often when he, says peop- when he sends people, he tells them, I will be with you. And it doesn't even always guarantee success. At least not in our eyes. God has sent people to missions that he knew would fail. If only because that's where God's heart was. And yet, Psalm 84 testifies that it is better to be one day in the courts of God than thousands elsewhere. And if we believe that, then God's saying, I will be with you. That should, that should settle any objections that one might have to what they're called to. No matter what our shortcomings are, God's answer is himself. So how can we position ourselves to be where the Lord is, to be where God is working? The way the book of Judges frames it, we do what God says, and we do it God's way. Simply put. And so the first way to know that, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, is Scripture. Knowing what God says in Scripture. There are clear commands that God has given us in His Word. And a big part of the problem in Judges is people either don't know what God said, or they disregard it completely. That's especially important at a communal level, but... At an individual level, the other way we can find out what God is saying and how he wants us to do what he wants us to do is discernment. And this is kind of where the fun is in our spiritual walk. And I say that half-jokingly because it's not easy, but there's a lot of growth that happens when we converse with the Holy Spirit. And we ask him, what are you calling me to do? What are you calling me to? And we learn to move with his leading. And so ask the Holy Spirit, what am I uniquely called to do? What's he placing on your heart? 
What keeps coming to mind? What keeps coming up in conversations? What ministries? What people? What names? What faces? I've heard some of you say, well, all I can do is pray. That's okay. That's okay. Don't recognize, if, if you are limited in what you can do to, in this season of life, and you're feeling, all I can do is pray, let me speak to that a little bit because I've heard it several times. Do not neglect that ministry. This church needs people to pray. We need people to be praying. That is part of God's command. <laughs> and so if you're at a loss, get in touch. Email the office, call the office, whatever. I will give you things to pray for. Whatever it is, whatever the Holy Spirit speaks to, the same grace that is on display in Jesus dying for us is on display in the story of Gideon, in the story of the judges, where God will rescue and God will move and God will work in spite of our flaws and in spite of our shortcomings. And so if we follow Jesus, the question is not if we are sent, but what we are sent to. And the only thing that matters when we move, as he says so, is that he is with us. That's a reality that Jesus died for. It is not just our responsibility, but our privilege and our joy to partner with God in our work, to, to partner with God in his work. Jesus died for us to be with God. Now, as we do what he asks, but also forever, as we recognize in the hope of eternal life. Let's prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper.